we all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, fit, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Amocan Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power, episode number 27. This is Jason Floyd, your host, and we are joined once again in the studio with our friend, our compadre, our plucky companion, Loretta Eaton. Good morning, Loretta. And uh, we, we've also got, uh, we're sharing the mics again today. Hopefully that will be sorted out here in the next week or so. Loretta has found a sound technician who is going to uh, work his magic and hopefully pull these other these other two mics online. But uh, I want to welcome into the cafe studio here uh, David Haig. And David is a local resident, uh, lives down uh, Funny River, you know, with all those Funny River folks. And um, he's, uh, he's come today to tell his story. And as you know, the format of the show is... Uh, we are here to support and build up uh, the conservative culture and uh, society and um, provide uh, community members with uh, support and telling their story. And, you know, the idea of conservatism is a lot broader thing than the media would like us to believe. They'd like to pigeonhole us all into white nationalists and, you know, extreme extremist uh, evangelicals and that sort of thing. And um, maybe David is one of those things, or maybe none of those things, but uh, we'll let him tell his story. Now, David, you've been making the rounds lately, uh, actually for quite some time. Um, how long have you been what is emerging to be kind of a, a, um, a community activist? Well, yeah, uh, it started a long time ago, but I really got... Uh, involved with trying to talk to people when we figured out that the grand juries in Alaska are, uh, we believe, intentionally being suppressed, their, their investigative ability. And when we figured out that that is a direct violation of Alaska's constitution and of Alaska statute, uh, we started trying to get the word out. And kind of what instigated that is uh, there were four grand juries that tried investigating uh, things concerning the public welfare and safety, which is exactly what our Constitution says that they're, they're there for, along with, uh, you know, indicting people based on evidence brought in by the prosecutor. But once we figured out that public officials were stopping the grand juries from doing their duty, I started uh, oh, going to different local entities. We started with the Kenai Peninsula Borough Assembly, and we we made a presentation to the Nikiski City Council. And then there's the Funny River uh, Community Association Board. We gave them the same information. And they all all are pretty appalled at what's going on. And they kind of jumped on board with resolutions and letters of support. And so that's kind of where we're at now. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, about your background. How long have you been in the area? Uh... I was born in Minnesota, but my folks brought me up here. I think in 1972. Back when like, the back when the winters were cold. Yeah, okay. exactly. So <laughs> I was only 
you know, I don't know, three or four or five years old or something like that. So I don't remember anything but Alaska. So um, I grew up across the inlet commercial fishing underneath at, in Chinitna Bay, right underneath Mount Iliamna. Um, and then when I got old enough to start flying and figured out that there was women elsewhere in town, I came here and kind of lived in Soldotna. But we do have a lodge on the west side of the Alaska Range also. But anyway, I live out Funny River Road on Browns Lake. Cool. So, um, you know, uh, it, this is an interesting topic because, you know, it being an election year, all of a sudden the politicians want to become proactive. And, uh, you know, um, I've been talking to a number of politicians and watching, reading a lot of news and um, I'm working with one candidate. And, and it's interesting that um, these issues kind of go away when there's not an election year have you have you been able to get any traction with our our local leaders because it's an election year or have you seen a difference from one year to another because i i i get the impression you've been doing this for more than a year yeah we've been doing it for quite a while um in oh there have been way back when uh i think it was senator tom wagner he tried helping and he identified uh he said that, you know, you know, I don't know if I can say exactly what he said, but he indicated the corruption so bad to go to the FBI. That's when we kind of first started going to the FBI with the evidence. They confirmed that what our concern is is happening, and that they've got multiple complaints of the same thing. But they have never done anything, and they've always kind of said that, uh, you know, when I pressed them to do something, that we would need like a video of, a big stack of $100 bills being given to a judge and a tape recording of them saying, we're taking this money to, you know, to get rid of this evidence. And we don't have anything that blatant, but it's close enough that something has to be done. Sounds yeah. like we need our own homegrown Project Veritas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe James no. O'Keefe would be uh, interested in, in uh, I know he does national stories, but maybe maybe he might do just a personal interest piece on Alaskans, uh, you know, corruption. Um, you know, it's interesting, this, this idea that we have something on the books, something that's constitutionally guaranteed and, and required, and the system uh, ignores it. You know, there, there's, there's something else. I was talking to a gentleman from, from uh, Sterling just recently, and he told me about another law that uh, is not being... Uh, observed by our system, and that that is the idea that that politicians and appointed people must carry a surety bond at their own expense, and no one in the state of Alaska is doing that. Not, no, nobody. And this gentleman's talked to everybody to the point ad nauseum on the hill that they just don't answer his calls anymore. So, what do we do when we have an unresponsive system? Well. Uh, I finally figured out that it's uh, public awareness. If there's enough public awareness and the public and the issue is big enough and the public won't back down, eventually they'll either vote the politicians out or they'll see. And I think, at least with my case, without any doubt whatsoever, it is so uh, scary a deal that, that it makes people nervous that the politicians need to know that there's public support behind them. And I think that because I've had a number of politicians stick their neck out of ways 
and get slapped or or you know told that this is not healthy for their continued career life or whatever that sounds like a threat uh well and uh like i said my business attorney uh he testified that he was retaliated against for trying to help me legally help me that um and my first attorney that i hired with this mess at the beginning under oath he also testified that had he done his job had he tried to defend me uh the state prosecutor, who is actually our district attorney in Kenai, would have come after him and tried to ruin his business. And so he made he and he admitted this under oath that had he done his job for me and I'd paid him, I think at that point we'd paid that attorney, I think almost fifty thousand dollars. He said had he done his job, he would have been run out of business. And so he decided to, in essence, let the prosecutor and law enforcement do what they wanted with me. And he just, and he, we actually proved that he lied to us when we asked how this would be going on. Um, you know, and so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell is there is multiple factors at work, not just, you know, incompetence or overt. They realize that they have to work in the system and, and that's kind of what it happens. And, and, you know, it was fairly recently we found that grand juries are supposed to take care of it, things like this. And what, you know, uh, what was the most interesting is when we figured that out and some grand juries actually tried to investigate, uh, we now have, you know, just compelling evidence that there's something wrong. And, you know, at some point, you know, in this, I'd like to maybe just go over exactly what happened here recently that, that makes it such a compelling thing that the borough assembly and all these other entities uh, stepped in. Well, can can you tell us first a little bit of the backstory? You know how how did how did you first how did the legal system first uh, interact with you? What what was the case that brought them to your doorstep? Okay, and this is some something that I try not to really talk a lot about because some people get uh, it, it sometimes kind of drives people away. Uh, in the winter of 2003-2004, uh, the state of Alaska approached me and asked for my help in conducting the wolf control program. And they said that, you know, for the first year, it had gone nowhere. They hadn't gotten near the wolves that they needed. And they needed somebody that was really good to go out and get the numbers of wolves that they had, uh, that they had uh, decided needed to be taken. And so they asked me to do it told me where to do it um went out killed the wolves and then they then said that they were killed outside of where they should have been killed and i said hey they were um killed exactly where you told me and they still went ahead and were going to prosecute me and the driving force behind all this was the animal rights activists had filed numerous lawsuits to stop the program and so had it come out uh, you know, I now know there's enough people testified. I now know that had it come out, the truth come out, the program may have been stopped for, you know, stopped permanently. And so they, they wanted to blame what happened on me. And to do so, they even falsified maps and locations, GPS coordinates to, to claim the wolves were killed in my guide area when in fact they weren't. Their own, the state's own GPS coordinates proved they weren't. Um, and so then it just kind of, as I fought, 
from there, more and more evidence cropped up. And I'll just give you one example is uh, we, uh, I went through several attorneys then at the, the recommendation of our business attorney who said that they were, you know, selling his words, quote, unquote, selling us out. But anyway, at trial uh, or before trial, the attorney kind of did his job a little bit, asked for discovery. I don't know if you know what discovery is. Yeah. but yeah. Um, So anyway, and uh, it was a written discovery request sent to the prosecutor in multiple ways, hand-delivered, fax, courier. Um, but anyway, I got convicted, and I still couldn't understand how I could be convicted and I just started looking into it myself. After I realized that my own attorneys weren't doing their job, I started looking into it myself. Finally, eight years down the road, I figured out that the map used against me at trial, we'd never got a copy of it, and that there was a, a tape recording of the prosecutor talking with state witnesses and law enforcement before trial, and we'd asked for copies, recordings of any of the meetings between the prosecutor and witnesses that you know, would be appropriate, and that was one. They were obligated to give it to us, but we'd never got a copy of that recording. And remember, that's before trial or a copy of the map. Um, and so eight years after the fact, we get a copy of the map and a copy of the recording. We found out the map had been altered to make it look like the wolves were killed in my guide area, which was their reason for charging me with guide crimes. But more importantly, the tape recording captured the prosecutor troopers and state witnesses talking about how the map had been falsified so they could convict me and so had we had that discovery we would have been able to prove what happened um, and then my evidence that had uh, would have proved I killed the wolves where the state told me to it was removed out of the court record uh, before the jury seen it, but there's a cover letter that is in the, the court record that proves the judge got it, and the, the evidence was in the judge's possession. So they took out the evidence that proved I was doing what the state said, or killing the wolves where the state said, and then they supplanted it with false evidence that I was doing it in my guide area. And so, so you are 100% certain that they knew what they were doing when they did that? There's a recording of them talking yeah. about so, doing it. So trial. we were talking a little bit before the the show here, and as you know, we like to throw some vocabulary at you. Uh, there's a legal term called mens rea, and you can't really convict uh, somebody unless you of a crime unless you show mens rea, or you have to lower the the um, the uh, severity of the charges. Um, so you know, uh, a good example would be. Um, premeditated murder down to manslaughter. You know, uh, if they show that you had had uh, made plans and you went out and whacked somebody, then that'd be premeditated murder. But uh, you weren't paying attention, you were texting on your phone and you ran over somebody, that would be manslaughter. And so um, in this case, it sounds like the state definitely has the mens rea, the guilty mind. The other term I'd like to throw at you is exculpatory 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 evidence you hear this thrown around in the news a lot and you know i know that a lot of people their their favorite thing in life is not politics and law and so you may just go right past your ears but exculpatory evidence is an adjective applied to evidence which may be may justify or excuse an accused defendant's actions and which will tend to show the defendant is not guilty 
or has no criminal intent, no mens rea. So, um, you know, this is something they did to Senator Ted Stevens. The, the Department of Justice uh, brought charges against him, but there were some inconvenient facts that would have exonerated him, or many people argue would have likely exonerated him of wrongdoing, but they withheld those certain facts. But in this case, you're saying they actually falsified evidence. So that's, that's a crime in and of itself. So it's not just withholding facts. It's actively taking a contractor like yourself who's contracted to take, if I understand correctly, they asked you to kill wolves, taking a contractor, an agent of the state, and effectively throwing you under the bus because that was the most politically expedient thing to do. It almost sounds like, uh, uh, what was that Fast and Furious? Remember the Fast and Furious program under the Obama administration, gun running? You know, it's like, oops, somebody noticed we should probably stop doing this and let's throw some people under the bus while we're at it. So... Uh, so it's our own Fast and Furious with Wolves and uh, the Fish and Game Department and the courts and the DA. So tell us about Grand Jury. How could Grand Jury help you? Well, um, in the years since, I went everywhere uh, to, try to, you know, to try to get some justice. And at this point, we're, you know, um, nobody can give us my family back its life, but I... Uh, don't want it to happen to anybody else, and I want to kind of expose what's going on. And in, uh, I think it was about 2018, maybe, uh, some people that were following my case said, have you ever had a grand jury look into this? And so I'm like, what? you know, they don't look into things. They just indict people based on prosecutor. Well, we ended up digging into it and looking at what a grand jury can and can't do in Alaska and I'll have people know Alaska's grand jury is one of the strongest in all the United States as far as the law and their ability to investigate. Um, and so I'm just going to read. There was a, a report by the, the Alaska Judicial Council in 1987. It was done at the request of the Alaska State Senate, and the report's called the Investigative Grand Jury in Alaska. I'd just like to read a, two paragraphs here which will help people understand that when a grand jury is formed and just sitting there indicting people based on evidence by the prosecutor and law enforcement, that they're just doing that so that they're sitting there all the time in case in the you know in case they need to investigate. Uh, anyway, this is what this report says: Alaska's grand jury serves two distinct functions. First, it acts as the charging body for crimes committed within its jurisdiction. The grand jury considers evidence presented to it by the state district attorney who has investigated the crime or crimes in each case. The grand jury decides whether the district attorney's evidence is sufficient to call for the individual or individuals facing the charge to stand trial. If the majority of the grand jurors find the evidence sufficient, the foreperson of the grand jury signs the indictment prepared by the district attorney and marks it a true bill. If the majority of the grand jurors do not find the evidence sufficient, the foreperson marks the indictment not a true bill and signs what is then referred to as a no true bill. This function is the grand jury's charging function. And then the next paragraph says, although infrequent. And when I say infrequent, I mean... Never. Years. <laughs> I mean, 
the borough attorney did a report and he said since about 1990 this is hard he doesn't even really know if there's been an investigative grand jury but i'll read this it says although infrequent the grand jury can also sit as an investigative body in response to instructions from the court or the district attorney or in response to petitions or requests from the public or in the initiative of the members of the grand jury the grand jury may investigate concerns affecting the public welfare or safety these public welfare safety concerns may arise from criminal or potentially criminal activity or they may, may involve non-criminal public or welfare safety matters um, and so and then it says, after completing its investigation, if the grand jury has found sufficient evidence to charge an individual or individuals with crime, the grand jury may ask the district attorney to prepare an indictment or indictments. The foreperson of the grand jury then incites the, then signs the indictment designating a true bill. There's also another thing that the grand juries can do, however, and it's written into the Constitution. Our Constitution says... Article 1, Section 8 says, The power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended. And so if a grand jury decides that they need to investigate, of course if they find enough evidence that someone should stand trial for a felony, which is, you know, they can't actually issue an indictment for, um, well, I, I guess they can. They can issue indictments for misdemeanors, but it's normally for felonies. Um they can do so, but the main power of the grand jury is after they investigate, they can write a recommendation. or It's called a report. And that report, they can name where it goes. And usually they say it shall be given to the media, to the legislature, to the, you know, the, the Alaska Supreme Court, the Senate. You know, I mean, anybody and everybody, the Kenai Peninsula Borough Assembly. And that report because the grand jury when they investigate they can subpoena people in and put them under oath it has very nearly the force of law because it it isn't law but when it comes out it's like the watergate uh report when the, the when, legal system has no choice but to respond correct yes and, and the reason or, why or, or face yeah or the face the public's wrath because the public then knows that this is the official report and it is the truth as the grand jury finds it without influence from government agencies because the 18 grand jurors, grand jury in Alaska has usually has 18, but, it, you know, if people, you know, if get COVID or whatever, they can have as few as 12. Anyway, a normal grand jury is 12 to 18 people. But, um, you know, and so anyway, that's, uh, you know, the power of grand juries, and I guess I'll let you comment a little bit, but I'd like to at well, least just go over what's happened here recently. Yeah, so, so, um, and go ahead, Loretta, if you want to grab the mic, but, uh, you know, this is, this is interesting because um, not many people know, uh, but the jury, uh, being a juror, is probably one of the most powerful things that anyone in, uh, in the in, in the in the nation, can participate in. Juries have the ability to nullify the law itself in specific case instances. So, for instance, if I'm starving to death and my family's hungry, and I decide to go out on the back forty and shoot a moose out of season, and carve that up and feed my family, and I'm charged with 
a crime because I took it out of season, and I'm brought before a grand jury, or a, a jury of my peers, and it is the state's responsibility. It's the burden of proof is upon them to not only show that I've committed a crime, but also to provide a, 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 the evidence in a compelling enough way to uh, outweigh the jury's tendency or desire to judge the merits of the law itself. In the instance of somebody starving to death, or let's say you're stranded in the wilderness and you you have no rescue and you're starving and so you take a, an animal out of season and you get some activist you know, prosecutor or a law enforcement officer that wants to throw the book at you, in the case of a jury, the jury could actually tell the judge, say that we find the defendant not guilty on the merits of the circumstance and that the law does not apply in this case. They, they can do that. Uh, the president can't even do that. Now, he tries to pretend like he can with his executive authority or privilege, which is not really uh, constitutionally founded. But um, so this is an interesting experiment. If you get called to jury duty, and which I have a number of times, you go down to the Kenai Courthouse at the appointed time. Now, I don't know how it is with COVID, but, you know, uh, you'll sit in a room with fellow jurors and they'll go through the, a process called voir dire, which is basically a, an examination of the jurors to see which jurors will be accepted, which jurors are, are appropriate for the case. And both sides of the case get to ask questions of those jurors. Before the process of voir dire happens, the judge will instruct the jurors on their responsibility. And in this particular case, one case, when I, when I was going before the court, the judge asked this question, will you accept the interpretation of the law by this court in making your deliberation? your decision. And I told the court, no. And they said, well, Mr. Floyd, why is that? And I said, because I believe in the principle of jury nullification. Your Honor, we, the jury, reserve that right. It's not to you to tell us how to decide or to restrict our decision in that way. She wasn't very happy, and she excused me. I didn't even go through water. So, so it's it comes as no surprise, you know. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that come with power. Usually, ego is a big factor, and when people feel that they have more information than you, or they're smarter than you, they're more qualified than you, there is a tendency in government and bureaucracy to treat you as a plebe, as one of these lower level, you know, sort of second class people because the the established elite know better than you and they're there to protect you from yourself but that's not how the state of alaska is set up the state of alaska very clearly in its constitution says that all authority for governance resides in the people i'm paraphrasing but it's of the people by the people for the people for the sole enjoyment of the people and it shall it shouldn't be abridged so the fact that uh, y- you, David, have experienced and seen a failure of the system to assure you the right to 
um, have your complaint reviewed by a grand jury and then that grand jury to make determinations regarding the abuse abuses that that you allege occurred that that is uh that that's that's pretty shocking and um i know that there's a number of people that are in juno right now looking at the problems with the the court system so uh, i'll throw the ball back over to you let's talk a little bit more about the specifics of your case and and where we're headed okay and again um this isn't about my case there are We've had hundreds of people come to us and say that they experienced the same thing. And what shocked me the most, or in the beginning, what concerned me the most is our business attorney said, you know, although what happened to you may be, I forget how he put it, the leading edge of what is going on, you're by no means alone. And this is happening more and more and more across the board. I've had people come to me and said that they lost their house when they shouldn't have, that attorneys got together with, you know, whatever, and illegal, you know, falsified documents, took their house. OCS is another huge one. People have been telling me um, things that go on there that is pretty shocking. Um, you know, divorces, whole nine yards. So it isn't just me, and that's one thing that people have to understand, um, that... Uh, it's getting, I believe it's getting worse in the courts. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's more and more people telling me uh, personal situations. Like, like, you know, I ran this by the Funny River Board. Two of the board members out there said they personally ran into the same thing I did and hit the same brick wall when they filed a complaint, that nothing happened. Um, What's well, interesting that you bring up OCS because OCS um – you know, I have a connection to that world as well. I was a licensed social worker for 11 years and uh, sat on the licensing board, which is set up to protect the public from malpractice and from uh, unethical practices. And uh, the OCS has exempted itself from the title and practice statutes. So it used to be that all of their their workers were covered by these statutes to protect the public from malpractice, from people who should not be working as social workers, who are not qualified. And when you have unqualified people making decisions, that harms people. And the whole mission of OCS is supposedly to stop harm from occurring to children and families or in families. And, and so, um, you know, the, the observations you're hearing from people about massive dysfunction I have all of my own stories that I can validate that with. You know, we could go into all kinds of anecdotal yeah. things. but Well, I, I want to get to the specifics of why all these entities jumped on board and are pretty horrified. Um, and so I'm just going to go over kind of what we've boiled down as the simplest way to convince people what's going on. Is there's an Alaska statute. It's 12.40.040, and it says, quote, juror to disclose knowledge of crime. If an individual grand juror knows or has reason to believe that a crime has been committed that is tribal by the court, the juror shall disclose it to the other jurors who shall investigate it. And I'm going to stop there and just, do you have any question what that means? I mean, is it totally clear? what that means 
Well, for our listeners, let's let's clarify. Okay. So, so if a juror, a juror sitting who's been impaneled and is part of the people deliberating, knows that the state has committed a crime or a crime, Anybody. Yep. Or a crime yep. has been committed that has not been previously disclosed in court, it is their job, their responsibility, to tell the other people deliberating so they can take that into consideration. Yep. And then it says, he shall disclose it to the other jurors who shall investigate. It doesn't say if they think they should or if it's a good day, you know, maybe whatever. They shall investigate. So that's an imperative, and it's in statute. Then you compare that with the Alaska Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. And the last line of Article 1, Section 8 states, quote, The power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended. Okay, so here you have a, a statute requiring grand juries to, to investigate, investigate crime right. that the grand juries know about. And we're not talking about crimes that the DA brought in or law enforcement because it says specifically if the grand juror knows or has reason to believe. And I'm going to read an affidavit from a grand juror that was on a seated grand jury. This was in Anchorage. Got another one from one in Kenai. This is affidavit of Shane Serrano. I served on an Alaska or, or I served on an Anchorage grand jury from December 6, 2018 through March 29, 2019. During the proceedings, I inquired about providing document, documentation to the grand jury I served on and evidence of judicial misconduct and crime associated with the trial and subsequent experience of David Haig. Remember what I told you? Correct. We, we have the recordings and maps and stuff. Judicial conduct investigator Marla Greenstein, district attorney Scott Leaders, trooper Brett Gibbons, and others were implicated. I believe this concerned the public's welfare and safety and that, according to Alaska's Constitution, my grand jury could investigate and make a recommendation. I was immediately told by prosecutors that nothing of the sort could be directly provided to the grand jury, regardless of what appeared to be clear instruction or even a responsibility to do so from the grand jury handbook in Alaska law. The prosecutor strongly indicated the only way to have evidence introduced was through their office, so I provided a folder of that evidence to them. After providing that to them, I never received a response back for me to testify or provide any additional information to a subsequent grand jury. It did not appear to me that the prosecutor's process met the intent of the grand jury handbook Alaska law or Alaska's constitution on providing that type of information and evidence to the grand jury directly or in allowing the grand jury to investigate. I, Shane Serrano, declare under penalty of perjury that the statements above are true to the best of my knowledge. Signed, you can see his signature here. And so, um, you know, there's that affidavit. Now here's another affidavit from another grand juror on a separate grand jury in Kenai. This one says, I, Ray Southwell, was on a Kenai court grand jury from the first Wednesday of January 2018 until the last Wednesday of March 2018. During this time, I attempted to present evidence to my fellow grand jurors so we could investigate it and write a report with our recommendations. I mean, that's almost word for word what it says in the Constitution. Much came from David Haig, evidence of crimes by District Attorney Scott Leaders, Judge Investigator Marla Greenstein, Judges and Troopers. Agencies overseeing these individuals were implicated. 
It was clear Mr. Haig was victimized by an unlawful judicial process followed by a cover-up. I also obtained evidence implicating the Office of Children's Services in crime and cover-up. All evidence pointed to systemic corruption concerning the public's welfare and safety. Before I could present the evidence to my fellow grand jurors and before we could investigate it, DA leaders personally stopped the process, gathered up my documents, and obtained an order from Judge Jennifer Wells prohibiting prohibiting me from disclosing my concerns and evidence to my fellow grand jurors. I believe DA leaders and Judge Wells violated Article 1, Section 8 of Alaska's Constitution, AS 12.40.030, AS 1240.040, and pages 16 and 26 of the Alaska Grand Jury Handbook. Now, if you remember, he was required to give that evidence to his fellow grand jurors, and they were required to investigate. And remember, the evidence he had implicated DA Scott leaders in crime. And did you notice who personally stopped him from doing this and took the evidence? It was DA Scott leaders. And I don't know much about what's called conflicts of interest, but that sort of seems to me like that might be a conflict of interest. Pregnant pause. So let that sink in, folks. You know, uh, a while back, I was uh, working with a group of community members to recall legislator Gary Knopp, the late Gary Knopp. And a lot of people felt that he sold the his district out. And nobody could put their finger on it. But an interesting phenomenon occurred as we traveled the community seeking support, signatures, petition. Uh, We talked to a number of business owners. And while in confidence many business owners would discuss their strong dislike for what the representative had done, either in his official role in the legislature or as a businessman, a local businessman, None of them, or very few of them, I should say, would sign the petition for fear of reprisal. So when did we arrive at this place in our state, in our nation, where when a friend or neighbor has been wronged by the government, we turn our head, we close our eyes, and we say, not my business, and we let the injustice continue do people really think that that's going to protect them in the end because history shows us that when you don't speak for justice it is likely that in your lifetime you will be the victim of injustice and so you know i don't know all the details of this case i've just met david but i would say that if he has compelling evidence that he's given to these grand juries and the statute's clear and the constitution's clear that they shall investigate they shall inform each other um if there's no impropriety why stop the proceedings you know it begs the question it begs the question if it's almost like when we go back to um last year's uh election results And 
the left was screaming, you know, that Joe Biden won legitimately and that people came out in record numbers to support him. But then when asked to actually audit those results and show that that indeed was the case, all kinds of tomfoolery and shenanigans transpired and cover-ups and missing hard drives and, you know, board of supervisors, you know, digging their heels in and saying that they weren't going to comply with, with the requests of investigators. And it begs the question, if we are to be a nation that trusts our system, if we are to be a nation of laws and not of men, then the law must be held above everything else, personal relationships, business agreements, affiliations, associations, uh, political aspirations. The law must prevail. And we must receive equal protection under the law. It shouldn't matter if you're Hillary Clinton or if you're Joe the Plumber. You remember Joe? Mm-hmm. Joe the Plumber? <laughs> Where is Joe these days? It'd be, it'd be interesting to see if he ran for, for office. I'll bet you he'd win. In this environment, this political environment. Go ahead, David. Well, yeah, it it uh, it's something pretty disturbing. I will say that. Um, you know, and, you know, at least with you know this thing with the grand jury, um, and the reason why I told you I don't like you know talking about what drug me into this is there's a large portion of the public that love wolves and don't matter what what the reason is but anybody who kills them is there's one teacher in the bush who doesn't love wolves actually she's dead because a wolf killed her yeah she was jogging but it does happen people yeah but what i'm saying is that this uh transcends anything it has nothing to do with what happened to me and my family it has to do with the only check that the public has on government officials that's effective and um, I'd like to go over one, you know, one thing. You know, we kind of went over because you asked about how, how I got into this with the, you know, the legal system. But if you remember, in both affidavits, there was they both said they wanted to investigate Judge Investigator Marla Greenstein. Both these affidavits. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, you know, where I read them. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try to quickly go over why they wanted to investigate. Uh, what is it? Judge Investigator Marla Greenstein. In my case, I, I told you that uh, the evidence proving that I um, killed the wolves where the state told me to was removed out of the court record while I was in the judge's possession. Well, during that same time, the, my trial judge was being chauffeured day, morning, noon, and night by the main witness against me, Trooper Brett Gibbons. And the reason why that is is the judge, Margaret Murphy, who ended up in Homer for a while, um, lived in Antioch at the time, and my trial occurred in McGrath. And so Judge Murphy flew from Antioch to McGrath, and there's no public transportation, and she stayed at the McGrath B&B with us, and it's uh, I don't know, at least a mile, maybe closer to two miles from the McGrath B&B to the courthouse. Me and my wife and daughters would walk, but Judge Murphy never walked. She rode, she rode back and forth in Trooper Gibbons' white 
trooper pickup truck and ran around during breaks and got food and coffee and donuts and whatever else the whole trial week-long trial and remember it was at this point where my evidence vanished and so after I realized how hosed I had been I filed a complaint against Judge Murphy and in my complaint I said she took my evidence and destroyed it before the jury could see it and it had been properly admitted there's documentation that it was admitted and should have went to the jury. I complained. Is it possible that when eating the donuts, <laughs> c- coffee was maybe spilled on it and it just, you uh, know, was I, accidentally destroyed? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm just, I, yeah. Bring I, it. Bring it. Uh, okay. I know it's not funny, but. Well, I know, but it, if you, you don't laugh, have, you've yeah. got to cry. Yeah, exactly. And so. Anyway, I filed a complaint about that and that she was being chauffeured morning, noon, and night, having meals with the trooper, who, again, was the main witness against me that said that these wolves were killed in my guide area and they, were, were, they didn't tell me to kill them. So anyway, I filed, long after I was convicted, I filed a complaint. And I found out that in Alaska, there's only one person that investigates judges and she's been there for 33 years because she's so good at what she does yes and she's the only one and she is still there today i want that job okay and so this lady's name was marla greenstein she's the executive director of the alaska commission on judicial conduct and so she uh and i've i actually have the the documentation because much of it was certified by another judge so the documents are certified a lot of them are signed by marla greenstein herself but anyway i'll try to get through this quickly you've got got time okay miss greenstein said give me a list of witnesses to the and she first said that evidence tampering i can't investigate that that has to be appealed through the courts and so she said you know, and I said, well, it's, it's a crime if she did it, and you're supposed to investigate crime. She's like, no, 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 that that has to be brought up in your your appeal process, so I'm not going to look into that. The only thing I can look at is the the riding around, the chauffeuring. And she says, you know, if you say it doesn't mean much, but, you know, you got any witnesses. So I gave her a list of four witnesses, and it was written on a thing, and I got a date-stamped receipt from the Commission on Judicial Conduct. So I can prove that she got these four witnesses. About a year later, I asked her, whatever happened to that investigation? She says, oh, I let the the judge off, and I let the trooper off because I contacted all those witnesses you gave me, and none of them said that they seen the chauffeuring. And I'm like, man, that's funny. They must must." I mean, I mean, my, I must be crazy because she drove to the court every morning when we'd leave in the, you know, at noon for our noon break. She'd leave with the trooper at noon. And then at the end of the night, she left with the trooper. She never, she never, I'll put it this way. She never went anywhere with anyone else. And she never went alone. She was all, and I'm like, how could this, how could all those witnesses that were out there not see that? Well, in my appeals, Later on down the line, the state said, oh, to conduct my appeals and all the research, we think Judge Murphy should now, not only did she do a great job during your trial, Mr. Haig, we want her to conduct all the hearings looking at what her, she her did. Her misconduct? Yes. Yeah. 
and and I said, well, that's a conflict of interest. And they said, no, 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 that's how that's how it is. She how knows it works. she knows your case best here in Hazard County, son. Yeah, we do things a little bit different. Yeah. So Cletus, bring me my coffee. Yeah. So anyway, I filed a motion to disqualify her for cause, and luckily in this, and she denied it. She gets to rule on her own motion. She says, no, I'll be fair. But luckily, there's a statute that says if you do that, it must be reviewed by an independent judge. And there was an independent judge that did that. Her name was uh, Stephanie Joanides. She was a sitting Superior Court judge. And so Miss Joanides says, um, well, Mr. Head, give me any evidence you have that she shouldn't, you know, conduct your post-conviction relief proceedings. And so it's now like two or three years after... I had first given Marla Greenstein this list of witnesses. I went back to all four, and guess what all four did for me? They all swore out affidavits stating that Marla Greenstein had never contacted them and that they had each personally seen my judge. They were obviously all committing perjury, all four of them, Yeah, because that happens. Well, then Judge Noniti started going back through the recordings of my trial, guess what the trial recorded? Judge Murphy telling Trooper Gibbons, hey, I got no transportation here. I'm going to commandeer you to go get some more Diet Coke for me, and let's go. And guess what? <laughs> to to supplant her ability to preside over my post-conviction relief, Judge Murphy swore out an affidavit that she never rode with Judge, with Trooper Gibbons, swore a sworn so affidavit. She, so she committed perjury. Yeah. So... Anyway, all that come to be, we were supposed to have an evidentiary hearing, but Judge Joniti says the evidence is so overwhelming that there's something fishy here. Judge Murphy's booted. She canceled the evidentiary hearing, so I didn't get to question Judge Murphy and Trooper Gibbons under oath. I think Judge Joniti's got scared of how, you know, everything Stupid was going. Stupid things got. Yeah. And so... And, and, as, and, and we're going to pause for a minute because... Loretta hasn't said a lot of stuff, and I, I used her favorite buzzword. So, Loretta, do you want to weigh in on stupid? I am so impressed that you're coming along to my side there. Come I on. Mean, I mean, really, you really. Because this is a group of people. They know they're doing wrong. They, I, I'm amazed. Like The judge was recorded talking to the trooper. How dumb are these people? No, seriously. They either live, they're, they're totally oblivious to what the average person can understand, or they think they're so far above everything. And that's what I'm getting from your story. I'm not getting, you know, the bad stuff aside, but I'm looking, I'm horrified at the arrogance. Arrogance and untouchability. The untouchability, and we're seeing it in, in what's happened with COVID. We're seeing it what happened with, uh, you know, the, 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 the vote falsification, the, you know, uh, you know, well, I, I have I have to tell you, David, as you're talking about this, the hair on the back of my neck yeah. is standing up because you, you're dropping all kinds of names that yeah. are in my past. Oh. So guess who lived in Antioch when Judge Murphy was the sitting magistrate? Oh, you did. I have no idea, but I think I'm looking at it. I him. took some of my earliest OCS cases before Judge – or uh, uh, she was she was a – she wasn't a magistrate. She was a, it's like the lowest level in the courts. This was way back. So um, maybe it was magistrate. But anyway, uh, that's when I first met Margaret Murphy. 
was okay. in Antioch. I so lived in Antioch. When she lived in Antioch, so I pres- uh, she presided over cases that I took before her for uh, OCS. Um, another name that you dropped. Why don't we? Why don't we? Uh, why don't we talk about Trooper Mallard for a moment? How does Trooper Mallard fit into this whole picture? Uh, when we got the the recording of the district attorney Scott leaders and Trooper Gibbons talking about how the evidence, the map used against me had been falsified, you know, and we realized we needed to go to the FBI because we, you know, had had filed a. I actually filed a criminal complaint, went nowhere, so. Uh, business attorney again says, hey, we need to go to the FBI. So we went to the FBI in Anchorage. I think it's on whatever it is, 6th Avenue or whatever. You're one of the lucky people who didn't get their door kicked in by the FBI. Well, yeah. <laughs> not, uh, not yet anyway. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, we sat in there and we gave the FBI the evidence that, you know, a, a prosecutor and law enforcement um, tampered with evidence. And then knowing it was false, used it at trial. And the FBI official, and I don't, I don't remember his name. I got, I can get it, but he, he said, "Have you been to Trooper Internal Affairs?" And I said, "No." Uh, and he said, "Man, they will eat this stuff up. They're, they will. I mean, this is their job specifically is to prosecute wrongdoing by troopers, investigate and prosecute." And he's and he's like, you know, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just have to chuckle. Okay, and I'll explain that later. Well, so anyway, um, we the the FBI guy basically said before we dig into this, uh, you need to go to Trooper Internal Affairs, and and I actually had a retired Alaska State Trooper with me at the time uh, by the name of Wendell Jones, who's a good friend of mine. Um, so you know, you know a good trooper. Yeah, well, yeah. he's de- he's since died, but he. Well, I, he was, I've known yeah. many fine troopers. So, well, he was. So yeah. I, I do want to I do want to sort of roll this back just a little bit and say, in every system, yeah. there's rotten stuff, yeah. but yeah. in nearly every system, there are good people, and uh, the social club here is very supportive of our law enforcement community, and of our uh, uh, military community, but. Saying that, if we if we look at the words law enforcement community, that dictates that you must be following the law. The point at which you stop enforcing and following the law, you no longer are part of the law enforcement community. You may wear a badge, you may have a title, but you have crossed over and you've become a criminal, and you're no longer worthy of that badge or title. Now, we each, to each of us, a large measure of grace, I believe, has been extended by our Creator. And so I feel personally that I need to extend grace to a lot of people, but grace comes to those who are repentant. If people are proud in their mistakes, and and I'm the first one to raise my hand to say I've made some mistakes in my life. It's the matter of the heart of repentance. And so, you know, I think about all these people in your case right now. Let's just go with Loretta's stupid, right? Let's just say that they're all very stupid, and they all made stupid mistakes, which is, we're not going to say it's fine, but it happens. And my dad told me when you make a mistake, what you do is you own the mistake. 
if it's a particularly heinous mistake where you've harmed people in the process, you apologize to them. You try to make amends. But if people take a prideful or arrogant position and they try to cover up their mistakes, that then crosses over from law enforcement to criminal activity. And they no longer, they can, they can, they can pretend to be law enforcers, but they've become what we, what we identified before, part of that nation of men, not of laws. They have undermined the rule of law. So I just yeah. want to put that out there for our friends in law enforcement. We appreciate what you do. We know you have a thankless, difficult job, and people like this don't make your work any easier. And you need to have all the credibility you can possibly have in the community and all the support you can get, and we are glad to lend that to you. Um, and I'll tell uh, as we as we kind of talk about Mallard and the Antioch connection, I mean, I could write a book about this now. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, crap, now I'm going to get a target on my face because, you know, these people are going to come after me for publishing your story uh, because they're, if they're vindictive like it sounds like they are, then everything's fair game to them. Um, but, you know, it's going to be very politically costly to do that because we have well over 2,000 people who are members of the social club who are here because they love coffee and they love liberty. Well, that's very good. Um, you know, and I, I realized long ago that there are two sets of people. I've had good friends that said that they can't help me, won't help me because of that. But then I've had people come out of the woodwork that I don't know that say, you're leading the charge, we're right behind you, we'll do anything we can. And again, you're exactly right. Like Judge Stephanie Joannides, she went in there and certified the evidence of what the trooper and the judge had done and brought out the witness uh, affidavits refuting what had happened. Um, and she actually sent all that information to virtually everyone. The Alaska Commission on Judicial Conduct, the Alaska Judicial Council, the governor's office, the attorney general, the Department of Law. She even sent it to the ombudsman because she knew from those affidavits that the judge investigator was no good, was dirty, and no one investigated. Not, not one investigation happened. And so we still have a judge investigator that is, uh, I mean, the evidence that she's corrupt is, is over literally, and, it, and I didn't even get to the most critical evidence against her because it gets far worse than what I've already told you. Do tell. Um, well, let me finish, okay. I guess, with, All right. with Trooper Mallard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, when, we'd, when my... Uh, trooper my retired trooper friend and i left the the fbi we didn't even go anywhere we went got outside the building i think we went into some hotel lobby or whatever and we called the troopers and said hey we want to talk to trooper internal affairs and at that point we found out that the, there was only one trooper that investigated for trooper internal affairs and that was lieutenant keith mallard at the time he was a lieutenant and so I wish I had a duck sound they, bite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they gave they gave us his phone number and so we called him on speakerphone and we said we had just been in to the FBI. They wanted us to give and we showed him the evidence that we had of felony conduct by a trooper and they recommended that we give it to Trooper Internal Affairs. 
And this is what Trooper Mallard, this is a, a, a near exact quote. Mr. Haig, I've heard of your case. All you have are sour grapes over being convicted. And I won't dignify your complaint with an address to send the evidence to. Click. And he hung up. <laughs> so that was our our, our it, it uh, con- only contact with Trooper Internal Affairs in this whole mess. D- didn't, didn't sound like he, he changed a whole lot from when I knew him in Antioch to when he was given this prestigious and important position. Now, how does one person achieve this uh, high level of, uh, of prestigious and importance in the department to be the sole investigator of impropriety when one has also been reprimanded for impropriety? I don't know. I, did, I didn't know that he had been reprimanded. So in Antioch, when I was doing social work, uh, there, was a, there was a weekend call. Trooper Mallard and Trooper Dan Scott and Trooper Dixie Spencer were the folks in that post at that time. Uh, Dixie has moved on to the other side. Uh, Mr. Scott may still be in prison, and Mr. Mallard was promoted. And uh, Mr. Mallard was the only person in the village on this particular Sunday, and uh, he was greatly annoyed that my supervisor, Sue Frisbee, and I would call him and ask for trooper escort because we had to do a removal on a medically fragile child. While we were in the process of doing the removal of this medically fragile child, the father comes home, totally drunk out of his mind. And Trooper Mallard was more interested in talking to some young boys who had walked up about selling a, a a snow machine wanted to talk about selling the snow machine, then providing the armed escort we had requested. As a result, I was punched in the face. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people who would like to do that, but in the course of my uh, of business, when you have a trooper escort, you expect the trooper to be vigilant enough to actually protect those who he's escorting. And um, so, fortunately, the guy was really drunk, and was he was a big man, and... Uh, uh, physically strong, physically big guy. I'm not a very big guy. But uh, being uncoordinated in his drunken state, I was able to kind of dodge him. And so instead of getting a full front, you know, full contact in the face, I got a glancing blow across my, I think it was my left cheek. And um, after that happened, then Mallard jumped into action. But uh, he should have known, and he wasn't doing his job. It was clear the guy was intoxicated. He was yelling. He was belligerent. You know, he's, he was upset. We were taking his kid from him, rightfully so. And um, so essentially he separates us. Long story short, we get the kid out. And uh, he asked me a question. Are you okay? And I did a quick self-assessment. Yeah, and I said, yeah, I think I'll be fine. You know, my face was a little bit sore. But, you know, all in a day's work, right? <laughs> so, so, but I was harmed. I was punched in the face. I was assaulted by a drunken individual who assaulted a state worker during the course of his duties. And um, so we got everything sort of buttoned up. And uh, the next morning, and this was a, 
a late afternoon, evening call. By the time it was all done, it was late in the night. So next morning, I come in the office, first thing, and my supervisor says, so we need to make uh, make charges. Would you like to press charges against this individual? And I said, most definitely. Because if I don't, I will become the punching bag of the Cuscoquim. Everybody will think they can punch me and get away with it. You know, and I won't be able to do my job effectively. So we called up the trooper and said we'd like to press charges. And Mr. Mallard said, no, I'm not going to do that. You said you were fine. Yeah, but he assaulted me in the course of my duties. I did a self-assessment. No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to press charges. So my supervisor called her supervisor, who called all the way up to the commissioner for public health and social services, who went promptly over to the public safety office, and I was told later, physically pounded on the desk of the commissioner of public safety. And crap runs downhill faster than uphill. And uh, the crap hit the bottom of that slope pretty quickly, and... It was only a matter of hours later that we got a call from Bethel. And Trooper Dan Donaldson was uh, in charge out of the Bethel main office and that kind of oversaw Antioch, and he had Mr. Mallard on the phone and said, Mr. Mallard, I believe you have something to say. And Mr. Mallard said, I'm sorry. Would you like to make a file a, a complaint? So he didn't do his job in protecting me. His his oath was to, what, protect and serve, right? So uh, he did not fulfill that oath in protecting the child in this case, nor protect the, the father, because the father was inebriated. And had he actually exercised his presence as law enforcement, as he should have, that father may not have gotten those charges. Now, maybe he would have. But he would have been a lot less likely to become violent if he knew there was a trooper standing in front of him with a gun. But uh, but he was promoted. Uh, he was sent to, um, well, it was kind of a demotion, but a promotion in the process. They took him out of Antioch. They sent him to Girdwood. And they served in Girdwood for a while, and I lost track of him. Then the next thing I hear, he is the commissioner of public safety. And it sounds like somewhere in that whole process, he became the only person investigating improper actions by police officers, which is ironic if you think about it. And, and uh, you know, very, he was very arrogant then, and it sounds like he continued in that vein. The last I heard, he, he, so he, he served for about 30 seconds as the commissioner of public safety, and I think somebody realized, hey, this is not our guy, and he lost that job. And then he moved on to become the police chief at the University of Alaska Fairbanks for their their campus police. So so these the you know the correlations. The, the, it's interesting. You've you, you've told me about these different actors and parties within your experience, and I know all of them. All of them. The only person I don't know is Scott Leaders. And uh, uh, and the uh, the the one judge that was that you said is in charge of uh, judicial well, investigation. Yeah, and she's not a judge. Marla Greenstein, oh, yeah, yeah. she's actually an attorney. Um, and I would like to to uh, tell you a little more of the saga of her. Is Please. 
you know, after. Are you sure you don't want a cup of coffee? I mean, this is I, this is coffee drinking conversation. I just got a, a refill. No. <laughs> a two cup, well, a to, two cup refill. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I normally drink hot chocolate, but oh, I've been we trying have to the, we have the best. We have we have sugar free. You know, we're going to turn this into a radio ad right now. You know that here at the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club, we're all about coffee. Let's, see, I was trying to avoid that. I don't. I, I do drink coffee. Yeah, yeah. Once in a blue moon, but I'm yeah. uh, I know I'm a kid that never grew up. I still like hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. So, um, but anyway, um, <laughs> you know, and I appreciate you having me on here because it's uh, it's good to start identifying that these people that a lot a lot of times people say oh i've never heard that that person did anything bad or i've only heard good things about it you know and like you said there's some of some of what these people have done um i don't know about you know i mean i've kind of through the years i've kind of heard stuff but i just tell people what happened to me and um you know and and like with the judge investigator doesn't uh let me I guess let me just finish with yep. her and then then we'll just talk about why it's so important that a grand jury be allowed to investigate her and not ordered to stop. Um you know, after Judge Joanidi certified the evidence that this judge investigator had falsified her official report to exonerate a judge who had uh apparently falsified a sworn affidavit you know, um, I because uh, Marla Greenstein, the judge investigator, is an attorney, and I'm uh, I'm going to have some justice for my family. I filed a complaint against her with the Alaska Bar Association, and I used the certified evidence because there was tape recordings of her saying that she contacted all the witnesses, and this this judge had her staff certify the transcriptions, make the transcriptions. Over and over, she's like, I, Mr. Hague, I don't know why you're so upset. We contacted all the witnesses. No one said anything. I, you know, that's why we're not doing anything with this judge. And I'm like, you know, you got it. I mean, what's going on? Upset? And <laughs> I think that's an understatement of well, what I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. I mean, that would be my response. $50,000 later and who the, knows untold cost and, well, and heartache for your family. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, and forfeiture $100,000 airplanes and other you know bunch oh of other stuff. Oh my gosh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay, we haven't sentence, gotten into sentence that. Sentenced to 2 years in prison and you know just a few other things. 30 or $20,000 fine. Yeah, just a few other things. Forfeiture of my master guide license for 5 years so our business that we'd put everything into went down the tubes. Yeah, there was a little bit more. So, anyway, I filed uh a complaint against Marla Greenstein with the Bar Association. And I used the evidence that a sitting Superior Court judge had certified. All these transcriptions and tape recordings of this judge investigator saying she exonerated the judge and trooper because no one's seen anything. But then along with that, I sent all the affidavits, which the sitting Superior Court judge also certified as true. And I said, it appears like this attorney falsified an official report, an official investigation for the Alaska Commission on Judicial Conduct to cover up for a corrupt judge. And I want something done. The bar provided my complaint to Marla Greenstein, and she wrote a certified written response. And 
at the bottom she says she certifies. She didn't say under penalty of perjury, but she says I certify this is true and correct to the best of my knowledge. And in her certified response, she still states that she contacted like two of the four witnesses. But remember, in her in her she said all of them. She said all of them over and over yeah. when she exonerated the judge. But then she says. I didn't just contact the witnesses Mr. Haig gave me. I also contacted Mr. Haig's trial attorney, Mr. Arthur Robinson. So, guess what I do? I call up Mr. Arthur you call Robinson. Art. <laughs> and I tape record him saying, I remember uh, Trooper Gibbons chauffeuring Margaret around during your trial. Nobody ever contact. You're the only one that's ever contacted me about this. And in the course of, remember, I told you that I, you know, I had evidence finally that my own attorneys had sold me out. Arthur Robinson is one of them that did that. Because of that, the state actually deposed Mr. Robinson. And guess what? I asked Mr. Robinson when he was under oath, "Were you ever contacted by this judge investigator?" And under oath, nope. So I provided that evidence to the Alaska Bar Association. You know, the state's own deposition mm-hmm. proving now this this is and this is just my opinion. I don't know if anybody would agree with me. I think Marla Greenstein thought it looked bad that every single witness she said she contacted had swore an oath that mm-hmm. she hadn't. So she wanted to find one person that would back her up and she picked my trial attorney because she knew I was going after him for selling me out for destruction of and my she life. she thought he would... Back her up. Back her up because he was mad at you. Yes. And guess what? He, he didn't. didn't. Well, that speaks to the man's character. Yeah. Well, I think people, by this time, people started realizing that they were digging a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger hole. And see, this is what um, these grand juries were investigating. And I'll have you know, these two affidavits, that ain't the only grand juries that have looked into it. There was another one in Kenai... And another one in Anchorage, separate grand jurors, so a total of four. The the grand jurors that tried to inf- that got the evidence for me, and I have proof that I gave them the evidence, and they were interested in informing me. The prosecutors scared them so bad they will no longer talk to me. Hmm. And so when you say retaliation, or whatever, and one of these grand jurors that I got the affidavit from. Um, I asked him, how far did you push this? Because the Constitution and the statute says you shall. If you don't push it, you're violating the law. You're breaking the law. He says he pushed it up to the point where he thought they were going to arrest him and throw him in prison. Mm-hmm. And the other, like I said, there's two other grand jurors that um, I contacted that won't write out an affidavit, won't give me anything. They are so scared that... Uh, They put the fear of God in them. Have you uh, have you contacted? Have you reached out to the governor's office? Yeah. Uh, um. There's a whole another aspect to this thing. Okay. Is that uh, in you know in these affidavits? You know, it was mentioned about uh, the Alaska Grand Jury Handbook. It was mentioned a few times. Um, The Alaska Grand Jury Handbook, if I can find it here real quick. It states, uh, 
page 16 of the Alaska Grand Jury Handbook. And by the way, if anybody wants to look it up, it's Alaska Court System Form J-185. Or all you have to do on Google is just Google Alaska Grand Jury Handbook and up it'll pop. Page 16 says, it, it asks a question in the Grand Jury Handbook. It says, can a grand juror ask the grand jury to investigate a crime that the district attorney has not presented to them? Yes, the Alaska statute state. If an individual grand juror knows or has reason to believe that a crime has been committed that is tribal by the court, the juror shall disclose it to the other jurors who shall investigate it. So not only does the statute and the Constitution say that they have to, even the grand jury handbook says they have to do this. And remember, everybody's running in there and telling them, ordering them to stop. Um, and I guess a lot of people may be wondering right now, well, maybe the reason why they're being stopped is the grand jury can only investigate the public. Maybe it's because they can't investigate public officials, you know, because a lot of people told me that that has to be it. Well, here is what uh, this um, or what the Alaska Constitutional Convention delegates talked about when they wrote, quote, the power of grand juries to investigate, make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended. Before they came up with that verbiage, they wanted it to say, quote, the power of grand juries to inquire into the willful misconduct in office of public officers and to, invite in, and to find indictments in connection therewith shall never be suspended. And the comment that's still in for the Constitution because they, they talked about if they had that as the specific right. Say if there was an earthquake and our soldatna septic system broke. Right. And people were getting sick because the septic was getting into our water wells in Soldatna. If the Constitution said the grand jury could only inquire into the willful misconduct in offices of public officers, they couldn't look into something an earthquake did. But I think everybody would agree that if an earthquake broke our septic system, people were getting sick, that that's a concern to the public welfare and safety. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to make the language in the Constitution more generalized so it would include things other than... Sorry about that. That's okay. It has happened to all of us. Um, I thought I turned my (laughs) ringers off, but... Um, uh, maybe uh, maybe that was the court system calling. Yeah. So, <laughs> or maybe the guys in the van out yeah. there. Wave to the guys in the van. Hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, there's some other statements by the Constitutional Convention members, and like I said, the commentary in one, they said the grand jury is preserved for all purposes. You know, like investigating the septic system, whatever. But it says for all purposes, particularly for investigation of public officials. And so, you know, the wow. grand jury... Well, you, know, the, you know, the guys that wrote that Constitution today would probably be seen as supremists, or, or, yeah. or you know, white supremists or, or nationals or, or extremists. Well, how extreme to say that we should expect our public officials to, I don't know, um, be honest, apply the laws equally and fairly... Uh, is that too much to ask? Well, or be investigated by a panel of the right, public. Right, right. No. I mean... Right, but but the fact that people are are backing down because they're being threatened with what they believe is going to be prison, 
for doing what the law instructs them to do by people who are supposed to be upholding the law. You know, it, it's unconscionable. And, you know, when I was in Juneau this last year, um, there was a lot of talk about judicial reform. And a lot of people don't understand that the folks that sit on the Supreme Court, uh, the names that come forward for those positions, guess who? Guess who's in charge of that? The Alaska Bar. Yeah, lawyers. No. The, the lawyers identify and recruit from within the own, their own ranks, and they provide the names to the governor for, for consideration. And so if you have such a rotten tomato like this that's just oozing, and every part of the system is providing cover for every other part, and then it's telling the people of the state of Alaska, by the way, if you do your part, we're going to put you in jail. We're going to take your business. We're going to take your airplane. We're going to bury you in a shallow tarp grave in Fairbanks. I don't know. Yep. You know, I mean, really, that's, that's what corruption looks like. When, when the public starts pushing back, if we do it singularly, we're easily taken out. Part of the Amokan Coffee Social Club's mission, and it's in our statements. The third statement says where one voice is easily or maybe easily silenced. Many voices raised together in righteous solidarity must prevail. And so, so we have to, as a community, get behind people like David and demand, put the pressure on the politicians, put the pressure on the courts, and demand justice, demand these investigations go forward, demand transparency, demand uh uh, adjudication of the crimes committed by public officials. Hold them accountable and make an example of them so that the rest of the system understands that when you make a mistake, it's okay to make mistakes as so long as you own them and you address them and you provide the victims of those mistakes some kind of uh, compensation or, or um, redress for their grievances. And that if you don't do that, you're going to be sitting right next to all those folks you put in jail if you're a police officer or you're a prosecutor. And that's not a healthy place to be. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, uh, so which yeah. Governor are you talk- which governor did you um, We, we, uh, I have a copy of it in my briefcase, I guess, but uh, there have been several, okay. you know, in you know all of them. So when um, did the case start? So Dunleavy, you've approached Dunleavy. Um, I, Walker. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, you know Dunleavy, maybe not so much because by that time you get you get exhausted. You you realize that it's not going to go anywhere, and so you just um, you focus. Well, you well no, <laughs> you focus your energies on where you're going to get traction, mm-hmm. and with this grand jury thing is where the traction is. I can tell you that mm-hmm. that. That there is no traction anywhere else. Period. I can I can guarantee you that. But I know with this grand jury thing because it's so specific. It isn't, you know, with all these other complaints things, whatever. Like, like with uh, Trooper Mallard, you know, because I didn't, he didn't give me in writing. It was voice, whatever. I have no proof of that. Right. You know, but with with this other thing. I have affidavits from the grand jurors, and you can look at the law and the Constitution. And when I show that to people, that's why the borough assembly went, okay, 
we got to do something. That's why the, you know, with some of the other stuff, like going to the governor, um, you know, uh, you can't, there's nothing really concrete. You know, you go to them and they'll say, oh, we're looking into it or whatever. And so it goes a month or two months or six months. And then you, you their, after a year. Their memory is very short. Yeah. You, you know, um, oh, we, we, you know, I gave it to this guy, you know, whatever. There's nothing, there's really no, unless they're honestly on your side and honestly want to do something, there's really no pressure that you can, there's no concrete way to know whether they're actually helping you or not. Well, somebody, you know? somebody, uh, I can't remember if it was David Eastman or Chris Kirker. or what, it was one of the more conservative folks down there in Juneau had been talking about um, the potential for, you know, because we have this, there's going to be a debate here shortly between Bob Bird and um, some other guy, I can't remember his name, but uh, uh, they're, they're essentially, they're going to be like a Lincoln-Douglas debate where they're going to talk about a constitutional convention. Because every 10 years that comes up. And uh, there was some discussion in Juno about about um, judicial um, judicial review and and um, uh, restoration. Basically, let's go in and reform our judicial system. And somebody had said, well, in these cases, and I think it was in the context of OCS, and th- there not being any other mechanism other than apparently, you know, the the licensing board from the civil side and the and the uh, grand jury from the criminal side. There's no other mechanism to do an investigation, to bring an indictment, to you, you know, to do any of this because to write, and yeah, and, because, and to write because a report the, even. Yeah, and oh. and the system insulates itself from all of that and is untouchable. And so the the idea was that maybe we should create a a independently elected position that is not answerable to any of those branches that is an independent inspector general that will be in charge of investigating public complaints against the administration. Well, and I agree, but probably more effective than that would the be jury. to just have a grand jury. Just because use the, the grand jury. jury keeps rolling over. It's new yeah. people all the time. And it's not politically motivated. Exactly. And that is the beauty of it. That's why they used it to investigate Watergate. Mm-hmm. Is they knew that if they used any entity that it was too politicized, pre- well, with President Nixon and everybody else at risk, they would put pressure on any entity that was formed mm-hmm. would have pressure on it. And so, if you really want the truth, the truth from what is best for the public and from the public's eyes, have the public do it. But you and I can't do it when we're sitting here. But a grand jury, once they're sworn in, they have uh, nearly unlimited power to do almost anything they want. In, in Minnesota, grand jury thought that the, the in Minneapolis, it was quite a few years ago, thought that the, the mayor of Minneapolis was corrupt. They ended up investigating him, hired their own private investigators because they didn't trust the, the system. And they indicted the mayor, this was back in the early 1900s, of Minneapolis, which is a fairly large city, and they put their own interim mayor of Minneapolis I mean, that, that's the kind of horsepower a grand jury really has if they're allowed to exercise it. Um, You're getting some libertarians really excited right now. Yeah, but... All, um, all, 20, I, all 24 of them okay. listen to the show. Well, <laughs> I would like to go into one other aspect. I thought this might be the case. I think it's off now. <laughs> it's probably one of those, you know, snooze things. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I don't know. Um 
you had said something about uh, had we been to the the governor, right? And I, I'd just like to uh, read you what it says on page twenty six of the grand jury handbook. It says, "Who decides that the grand jury should investigate something?" Generally, grand jury investigations are initiated by the district attorney. They can also be initiated by the presiding judge or by members of the grand jury. But but we know that's not true because we got these affidavits from grand jurors that say when they tried to initiate it, the court shut them down. The district attorney and the judges shut them down. But it also says then after that line, it says prosecutors also sometimes receive letters from the public addressed to the grand jury requesting investigations. In these situations, the prosecutor will probably conduct a preliminary investigation and make a recommendation to the grand jury about whether to take action. It will be up to the grand jury to decide whether to investigate the matter requested in the letter. And then I'd like to just read one more thing from this report just to back up um, that the public is allowed to... uh, you know, ask the grand jury to investigate. Um, where is it here? Uh, um, anyway, uh, this report, it it basically backs up that, that people can, uh, you know, approach the grand jury with a, a petition or... A request. So this is one way that uh, we can petition our government for redress of grievances through the investigative process. Yeah. Um, you know, the grand jury handbook says, you know, it, the way it's written there, it makes clear that uh, um, public requests have to be given to the grand jury. It, but it, it, what it says is that the prosecutor receives requests from the public and then the prosecutor. So it makes it, it puts in mind that you have to give it to the prosecutor, and then he gives it to the grand jury. And so what we did is we, uh, oh, right here. Um, and I already read this earlier, but in this report, investigative grand jury in Alaska, done by the Alaska Judicial Council, in the in this report it says, uh, although infrequent, the grand jury can also sit as an investigative body in response to instructions from the court or the district attorney or in response to petitions or requests from the public, the grand jury may investigate concerns affecting the public welfare safety. And so there's this official report that documents public requests and petitions will go to the grand jury, and that's backed up by the grand jury handbook, which says that uh, the public who writes letters, they give it to the prosecutor. The prosecutor gives the letter to the grand jury along with his recommendation on whether or not and then you know the last line says but it will be up to the grand jury to decide that makes it very clear that at some point it's their discretion the grand jury gets the request gets the letter gets the petition there's no there's no uh ambiguity about that at all the prosecutor can say hey this is something i don't think you should waste your time on he can do whatever but in the end the grand jury gets the letter or the request i mean is that that's clear Right. right okay so after i don't know maybe 15 years into this mess i'm like and we found out about the grand jury we you know we found out about it in like 2018 or whatever i'm like i'll start a petition calling for a grand jury investigation of 
the judge investigator. And remember, um, I maybe I didn't go over this. This judge investigator, I talked to her. She says she gets about 20 complaints against Alaskan judges per month. Per month. Per month. And she investigate. She decides to investigate about two or three of those. But if you take 20, I don't know if you got a calculator there, but can you do 20 per month times 12 months times 33 years and maybe come up with a number? 20 times 12 times 33? 33, yeah. That's 7,920. Okay, that's how many judges she has been the sole person to look at the complaint and decide what happens. On average, if that if that 20, yeah. Yeah. 20 a month yeah. average holds. Now, you, you think about how much damage may be occurring across the state due to one mm-hmm. corrupt public official. Mm-hmm. Just I want everybody just to think about that for a minute. Right. Every complaint for the last 33 years, this lady is doing it. And I told you what she did in my complaint. Right. I mean, does anybody think that that might be a concern to the public safety or you know, welfare? You know, I think that's the definition of the deep state right there. Mm-hmm. That that you get these bureaucrats that are entrenched. She's not even a judge. And they get a paycheck and they build alliances and friendships yeah. and, and kingdoms and they shore up their walls and then their islands unto themselves. Who holds her accountable? Well, is, is it that, will it is, will be the grand jury eventually. I'll yeah. make sure of it. How, but, how but, about uh, how about how uh, about the uh, uh, who? I guess who appoints her again? This is another interesting thing. Is her boss is quote unquote the Alaska Commission on Judicial Conduct? That board that commission is made up of three judges, three attorneys, and three private people. After what happened with Marla with the Bar Association, nothing happened. I talked to all four witnesses that she had falsified contacting, and I said, hey, this commission meets four times a year. Every three months they meet. And guess what? I read their bylaws. Their bylaws say we encourage testimony from the public concerning anything that this commission does. And so I talked to the witnesses. I'm like, I think that their only judge investigator for this commission falsifying her investigations to let corrupt judges keep sitting on the bench might be something that concerns the commission. And the only other caveat that the bylaws have is it says that you have to notify the commission more than 48 hours in advance of their meeting that you wish to testify. So I got all four witnesses to call a week ahead and the chairman of that commission his name was judge ben ash i think he was from nome he said no we won't let you testify (laughs) and it gets a little worse i'm kind of hard-headed as you might be catching on well it's just 15 years so it's 15 years between between friends and enemies so i said (laughs) i said your bylaws say that you encourage public testimony and we called a week ahead of time, mm-hmm. not 48 hours, a week. Mm-hmm. I said, so we're going to be there. And we got there to the door of their building in Anchorage. There was a trooper SWAT team waiting for us. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So they don't really like anybody uh, talking bad about their judge investigator because she's such a good person. I really wish I could do a boss hog impression better. 
<laughs> I mean, really, seriously, this is like every bad '70s TV show with a corrupt sheriff and 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 court. Yeah. And, and and welcome to Hazard County, the state of Alaska. Okay. Well, and I'll get. Remember, I told you that we started a petition. You know, right. to to. How many be, signatures did you get? Right now, we've got almost a thousand. But at the time we submitted, we had over five hundred. Okay, and we ran in the same thing you said. Lots of people, more people would sign it, but invariably they're like, if we sign our name mm-hmm. and we ask for their address and their mm-hmm. date of birth so that there's a, a number to make validating. it kind of... Validating. Yeah, validating yeah. number. People go, well, they might come after us. We don't want to sign. But we did get, at the time when we submitted it, we had about, we had over 500. Because it says, you know, mentions the district attorney or prosecutor... I went over to the Kenai Courthouse, or across from the Kenai Courthouse, and I delivered it to the district attorney's office. And guess what? District attorney was there. Scott Leaders was there. I handed him the petition asking the grand jury to investigate him. (laughs) And he took it, said he would not give it to the grand jury. And when I asked for written confirmation that he got it, he refused to give me written confirmation. So I knew that that wasn't going anywhere. I went into the clerk of court in the Kenai Courthouse and handed her a copy of the petition. She said that she didn't think that she could give it to the grand jury, that she would contact a judge. Never heard back anything from anybody. But then I sent a copy through the mail with return receipt to the presiding judge. Because if you remember in here, the presiding judge is also someone who can initiate a grand jury investigation. Sent one to the attorney general. Um, at that time, I think it was uh, Jana Lindemuth, I think, was the attorney general at the time. And the governor, I forget exactly who it was, but I've got copies of the green receipts in my thing here. And and to the governor. So I sent it to the, the attorney general, the governor, the presiding judge. And a little while later, I hand-delivered a copy of the petition to the governor's office. And they were kind enough to date stamp the top page and then give me a copy of that so i you know you know the governor the governor's office received it yeah there yeah, there is yeah. zero doubt about that yeah. um the the presiding judge said that he cannot initiate a grand jury investigation but it says right in the grand jury handbook that he is one of the officials who can but he says he can't so he gave his copy to the department of law so that didn't go anywhere um the we never heard back from the governor. Never heard a word from him. I'd love to know which governor that was. Um, I can I can <laughs> get it there. <laughs> and then and then well, fifteen uh, years. This has been going on fifteen years. This this was about four or five years ago that this happened. Okay, so Walker. Okay. Um, and oh, uh, I started hounding. Did you hear that that Walker's running for governor again? I heard, did hear that. Maybe yeah. he wants a second crack at answering yeah. your problems. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's probably um, his sole motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, we I should st- go back to Loretta's stupid now. Yeah. No. <laughs> anyway, no. go well, ahead. <laughs> I I started hounding the Department of Law, you know, in the the Attorney General's office for a reply, and finally they sent me one, and they said. Uh, we cannot give the petition to the grand jury in its current form. And I said, well, what form, you know, what, 
you know, I'm happy to come up and meet with you. And but at that time, Senator Machicki was helping. And I says, I think I can get Senator Machicki to come up and we can iron this out. And then they refused to ever respond to any of my emails after that. They just, they said that we can't give this petition in this, in this form. And it was a, I, I, I think I have a copy of the petition in. Uh, hopefully you've got in all of your documents in like yeah. a safe deposit box somewhere so that if you go missing, your family has some kind of uh, yeah. a recourse. Well, we, early on, we, yeah, I've spread it to a few people and. No, or, and, you know, and, and in all seriousness. Yeah. In all seriousness, when when we start rattling cages as just regular citizens and we challenge centers of power and powerful people, bad things happen. You know, yeah. you can look at Epstein. But worse things happen if we don't. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 we have to, you know, my my advice to all those people who would sign a petition but are fearful for reprisal. Think about the world you leave for your children and your grandchildren. You know, liberty is not given. It's, it's won. And a lot of people fought and died to secure our liberty. And it was hard won. But Thomas Jefferson said that the tree of liberty must be watered by the blood of patriots and tyrants every 20 years. And... I don't believe in fomenting violence, but what I do believe in, he's saying by that, you know, in modern application is you must be an engaged electorate. You must be, you must, first of all, you must know the law. You must know the power that the law uh, affirms that you have in this, within the system. And then you must stand shoulder to shoulder with your neighbors as they operate within the, the uh, definition of that law. If you refuse to stand with them, there will be no one to stand with you when you need it, or with your child or their children, your grandchildren. And so remaining silent, sitting on the sidelines, hoping that something good happens for people like David, but not actively putting your hand to the plow. And when I say putting your hand to the plow, I mean signing a petition. And that, I mean, that's the least you can do. You know, knocking on a legislator's door. You know, the legislature has the power of the purse. And the Department of Law, the court system, and public safety come before the legislature every every budget cycle and ask them to fund their departments. And we have uh, we have Sarah Vance, we have Ben Carpenter, we have Ron Gillum, we have Peter Machicki, you know, all living here on the peninsula. And if every single one of those people had an overwhelming flood of calls knocks on their door, emails, postal, uh, you know, uh, letters in their, in their mailboxes, screaming for judicial reform. They might be able to go into those committee meetings and say, you know what, it's nice, you know, that the court system would like money, but until you address these issues, you're not getting any. That's powerful. And uh, so carry on. Yep. Um, could I pass the mic over yeah. and I'll get the documentation yeah. Yeah. I have on the petition? Yeah. Loretta. So. <laughs> um, Loretta's wide. Loretta is Loretta. Uh, Loretta is wide-eyed and bushy-tailed over there. Okay, <laughs> I would like you to, Loretta, to maybe in this thing here, read this. You know, people 
uh, this kind of lays out a little bit more of what kind of goes on. But anyway, here's your. No, actually, I, you know, the minutia is fine. But I think that we forget that the same thing that's being ha that's happening here is it's it's happening with COVID. How do you think the, the people with COVID, you know, the Anne Zink, how do you think she was able to just blow off any commentary or criticism or anything? Because they're entrenched in this. The, the, first, first of all, the bureaucracy, the um, you know, the the people that are hired and put in positions to review things. They have no interest in seeing anything change. You know, I, I'm sorry you sit and say that it's it's evil. I just think it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just think they're in their small worlds. I really think they don't want to go anywhere. They I, want I, to keep their jobs. Even I, the judges. I think, I think nepotism and exactly. uh, and and uh, incest are not functions of stupid. I believe they're evil at their core. No, I think I think that, I think that they don't realize they're wrong. I'm I'm very serious. So so they're uh, so 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 then the I guess the only way I would ag agree with that statement on its face would be that they're morally bankrupt. And yes, so in that morally bankrupt. In that bankruptcy, yeah. they have yeah. no they have no north star to guide them. No, no. I mean, why did Frank because Lukowski, they have yeah. they have they have put their thumb over the north star yeah. and they have elevated themselves to that position to say I am true north. Yeah, kind of like Dr. Fauci said. I am science. I am science. You know, or Frank Murkowski, why did he think he could replace himself with his daughter? And now we're stuck with her. Because he knew he could. He knew he could. And he did. He, he did. He knew he'd put and up with it. And she's still here. And she's still here. What, 20, 12, 14, 16 years later? But I have no idea. Say, you know, that was for the greater good, so don't be so judgmental. You know, um, you know, we needed somebody who can reach across the aisle and, oh, wait, I, she didn't just reach it. She fell across. She, yeah. She... Actually, I think she was always on that other side of the aisle. She, she was, was just, she just very wanted, good she at did, yeah. projecting yeah. something different, she, she like just, Kathy Geisel. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so that's our little Fourier into yeah. politics today. Let's yeah. jump back over to the courts. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, I got out the. I'll hand this to you, but it was to Governor Bill Walker. Um, the return receipt came back May ninth, two thousand eighteen. So, Bill, if you're listening, and the other one <laughs> went to. Uh, presiding Judge William Morse, Anchorage Superior Court, and the other one went to Attorney General Attorney General Jana Lindemuth. Um, and then, like I said, there's a copy of the page that we when we hand delivered it. Um, I wonder if any of them has uh, airplanes that they like. They got mine. They got yours. Yeah. Well, you know, Frank had his his airplane. Um, you know, and that's a copy of the petition. And I will say that after. Uh, there was a little wrinkle that came up with the airplane also, and they offered to give it back. And everything else they had seized from us, if I agreed not to, if I agreed to end all litigation, <laughs> and I gave them, gave them the finger. I said, no, you ain't going to do this. You're not going to buy your way out of this. So, well, my hat's off to you. And, and, and you know what, today, folks, yep. I am wearing a hat, so oh, I'm actually so going to, I'm, I'm taking my Brandon hat off. And uh, now you get to see my hairdo. <laughs> What's left of it? <laughs> uh, you know, this is this has been enlightening. Uh, we are drawing nigh to about uh, an hour and forty-five. So you got forty-five uh, minutes of bonus content today, and uh, we want to just thank uh, David for coming in. David, do you have any any? I guess concluding statements. Any any calls to action? Any any advice for our listeners? I I do. Um, 
I know that any entity that we've went to now, the Borough Assembly, the Nikiski City Council, the uh, Funny River Community Association Board, when we showed them the affidavits of the grand jurors and the law, they jumped in and are uh, writing resolutions, letters of support, whatnot. And so any community, you know, I don't know if there's like some community council in Seward, um, in Homer. Uh, we've got some people maybe checking into Homer. I would like to make a presentation to any and all entities like that. And, and like, and maybe you'll, like these. You'll, you'll be talking to Liberty Action exactly. group today. Yep. Right. All these, I realized I'm kind of a homebody and I don't do much. Um, but I need to, to get out and do this because I, uh, you know, I'm kind of going crazy because I have all this evidence and it's not going anywhere or hasn't been going out. Now it's start. It's kind of like it's got a release and it's starting to get out to the public. You know what would be awesome? And normally I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but um, have you considered running for office? Well, I mean, you're already living through the crap. The crap. I mean, what a way to bring this story to the forefront if you're a candidate, because everybody will try to drag up your quote-unquote criminal history, which is just a a gift. Yeah. A gift that will never stop giving <laughs> from your perspective as a political candidate. And I'll tell you what. We need people with tenacity. Yeah. We need people with resolve. We need people who are homebodies and are not actively seeking office. But when great need and responsibility is thrust upon them by their community, that they step up and serve, not from a position of this is a new career choice for me, but if good people do nothing, then evil prevails. And, and you know, this is a Jeffersonian idea. Yeah, that each of us has an occupation, an industry to which we commit our time, and that public service should not be sought after but thrust upon us and that we only seek that uh, to, to serve in that for a season, the season in which there is great need for us to do so, and that when that season passes or we have accomplished the great task that is called of us, that we then retire gracefully to our occupation. You well, know, I... At this point, I've thought long and hard about that. I've had people actually ask me, you know, and they're and but I ran it by my wife, and she's like, you know, <laughs> appalled. I guess is the proper word. But I do know that in uh, New, there was something I read. You ever heard of what's called the Mullen Commission in New York City? I have not. It was uh, the, I think it was like the. 65th precinct or whatever anyway there was corruption there in the new york city police and i think i have a, a, a print out on it yeah just one paragraph but it made the hackle stand up on the back of my neck because it's exactly of what i'm run run into here basically they said the the corruption in the new york city police department um you know they were police officers were running their own drug rings and murdering you know the competitors, whatnot. And they wondered why it got so bad. And they said it was the, their superiors and the piece, the entities that should investigate were more afraid of the scandal mm -hmm. than of just continuing to cover up. And they said it just, it, they said it went for years and they said any entity that 
that needs the public support will always try to hide anything that will erode that public support. And they said that years of whatever they said, self-protection went on unabated until the commission, uh, it was an independent commission, investigated. And they just found it was from top to bottom, everybody was involved. And, and it that, sounds like those people did so at great risk to their lives. Well, Potentially, yeah. if the cops are offing the competition. and Yeah, but it, it ended up, how it broke is one district actually arrested a bunch of drug dealers and come to find out they were all New York City police. And then it, it kind of came out into the public, and then that's where it, it, it got exposed enough that no one was at risk then because it was so big widespread. That, yeah. yeah, and that's kind of what needs to happen here. Um, and where I'm going with that is it was the New York City Mayor Dinkins that appointed that commission. And I actually asked Senator Machicki, could the legislature have an independent commission to look into this Marla Greenstein? And supposedly, I don't, you know, I trust Senator Machicki. He said he talked to legislative legal and said they don't have a power to convene a commission. Ledge legal is run by a bunch of leftists. They are as bad or worse as the Alaska bar itself. They're a microcosm of it. And from the conservative side of the aisle, as as we saw, as I I got to personally experience when I was helping uh, Ron Gillum with his legislation, if it's not within the leftist agenda, if it's not something that makes the left look good, that they will drag their feet, they will give you, um, they will give you uh, opinions about what the legal standing is. Uh, they will they will put up every roadblock and barrier they feel they can get away with to stop the legitimate exercise of the public. Now, the reality is is that ledge legal is given way more control than they ever should have had. We don't elect ledge legal. We elect legislators. The legislators are ledge legal's boss. But a lot of people go down there and through different trainings that they have as freshmen, through, you know, and, and you can look at this on the, on, the, on the municipal side, you know, the Alaska Municipal League, a um, bunch of leftists. They brainwash all of the people that we elect to do a good job and say, as soon as you walk through the door, your hands are tied in these specific ways. You don't have the authority. Ultimately, we have the authority. We just yeah. have to take it. The courts don't have the authority to enforce law. They only have the uh, authority to interpret interpret its constitutionality. But a lot lot of activist judges get full of themselves, and they they usurp the role of the legislature of the people to then make these edicts, you know, that that become case law, and then nobody challenges the case law, and law enforcement blindly follows the court's direction when something's blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah. And so so we have to take our power back. And there are lots of civil ways to do that, but it requires us to become politically active. It requires us to take the folks who are are um, emotionally, socially, politically constipated and get them out and find somebody who's going to be resolved, stand on principle, stiffen their chin, take the hits, realize that they may be marginalized, but once critical mass is achieved of enough of those types of individuals, that's only when change will happen. You can look at at uh, Senator Reinbold, Senator Mike Schauer, both of those folks. 
principled, resolute, taking hits from their colleagues, taking hits, uh, being undermined, undercut by people yeah. like Senator Machiki. Senator Reinbold was the only person last year who was standing up for liberty when it came to COVID mandates and restrictions. And Peter Machiki removed her from her committee chairmanship. That's Peter Machiki. Yeah. Uh, Senator Schauer, similarly, when he became outspoken about audits and about a number of other things, what they do to him? They took his staff away. So these are the people that are being elected. They're the ones that say, I'm principled. I stand on liberty. But then when they get into a leadership position, they cut the knees out from under liberty because they're not principled. They will not stand firm, and they bow when threatened. Oh, and by the way, they're not beyond threatening people themselves, as our listeners know. So, uh, again, my hat's off to you. Thank you very much for your time. We have our Liberty Action Group that's going to be starting here shortly, and so I should probably uh, bring this to a close. I did have several things I just wanted to say because we've been following the the COVID, uh, you know, madness for two years now, and um, just some high points for this week. The CDC changed the definition of fully vaccinated again. Uh, So now now you're not fully vaccinated unless you're boosted. Uh, Hawaii now says that uh, you cannot come to Hawaii unless you are fully vaccinated and boosted, which is the definition of vaccinated. My wife, my, or not my wife, but my, my sister is going to be really upset because mm-hmm. her husband bought her tickets to Hawaii and she has been vaccinated, but she's not boosted. And she had told me she would not become boosted. And um, the WHO now says amidst all of this CDC uh, direction that boosters don't work. No. <laughs> the WHO. Who? Same. The W the WHO yep. uh, Shiva Same Hospital Shiva Hospital yep. in Israel yep. shows uh, boosters yep. only last a few days. Yep, I, I, and actually, the more the current research is, the more boosters you have, the less the less work. effective they are. <laughs> so go uh, for it. The, I think we the, should do six or seven. The WHO also mm-hmm. said that uh, advised uh, international uh, travel bans and restrictions and mandates. Uh, for vaccines or and useless. masking, uh, be lifted. Be lifted. Be oh. lifted. Be yep. lifted. Yep. Oh, also, Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. under po- uh, immense uh, public pressure, the Prime Minister of Britain, yep. has now reopened the country and said yeah. that mandates are no longer required. Um, they'll leave it to uh, yep. the the citizens' discretion. To decide whether or not they will still advise, hey, you might want to wear a mask, but uh, lots of new information about masks and that those are not effective either. They're not effective. And uh, cloth masks, especially. So interesting, interesting collapse of the House of Cards rapidly happening. The the dominoes are falling. Meanwhile, our illustrious uh, uh, chief uh, medical Medical officer and Dr. Ann Zink is Mm -hmm. uh, getting ready to meet for a. What I recently called a cuddle party oh. with uh, Pfizer. Yeah, and there's a, there's it, a Pfizer it, it, there's a Pfizer yes. uh, upper management person coming to Alaska yes. to help us understand how we can get all these silly uh, liberty loving people yeah. to change their yeah. their yeah. decision to get vaccinated. Yeah. So that's your news uh, for the week. Oh, also big news: Charlie Pierce has come out and said oh. he's running for 
mayor, borough, uh, or governor. not mayor, but, governor. but for governor, Charlie Pierce. Um, interesting fact, read the Alaska Watchman, and you will see that Mr. Pierce's uh, selected spokesman mm. has said that Charlie's not a guy who's going to throw bombs, and he's not a guy that's uh, uh, one would consider far right. Mm. Uh, clearly a jab at Mr. Kirka, who's also running for governor. And the the only person that anybody would probably argue is far right because I don't know he stands on something called principle, yeah. um, and uh, but but what Mr. Zayus Peter Zayus who lives in Homer I believe oh who, really who, that's his who, spokesman uh, who, yeah is his spokesman oh, uh, also said Charlie uh, and I'm paraphrasing here Charlie is a unifier mm-hmm. you know he's going to reach across the aisle and work with the Democrats. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and if Mr. Zayus has a job next week. Haven't we tried that before? I mean, isn't that what's going on now? (coughs) Murkowski. Walker. Walker, but even Dunleavy. (coughs) Dunleavy. Sorry. They're working across the aisle. I I I don't see anything getting done. I think I have. Got to watch that I have the evolved version of Omicron. It's called moronic. Moronic. (coughs) So... um, (laughs) It, it, it really sticks in the throat. Yeah. <coughs> that's that's where moron, moronic lives, is, yeah. is deep in the throat. Um, and we'll stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Don't go anymore. No. no All right, folks. You've been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club. Conservative. Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. You've been on with uh, David Haig and Jason Gordon and Loretta. We will see you next week.